Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bow. And that is it. Today is the, today is uh, just... Riding solo. Yeah, just Hayden and I. Um, today is our book club episode, and we're going to be reviewing the book Range. We're a little bit behind. We said we were going to do it a few weeks ago, but um, I actually have no idea when this is going to come out. So, but still... You know, here we are. Better late than never. Better late than never. Exactly. This this book was awesome. I I really really liked it. Um, Hayden got to, you know, learn yeah. about it vicariously through me. Um, was he little, was reading another book. Yeah, but, I was caught up in alchemy. Yeah, but I think this is like the longest book that I've read in my life. How long is this? It was it was long. Look, it's that one. Oh man, it looks even longer because you've read it in the sauna. It's been left in the rain. Dude. That book has seen better days for sure. It's about twice as thick as it's supposed to be right now. Dude, my my <laughs> books always end up like that because I leave them outside in the rain. I take them to the sauna. I, ten out of ten times, I'm for sure gonna spill my coffee into a book too. That's a classic. That's so move. many coffee spills in there. I mean that that's a given though because you're drinking coffee every morning when you're reading it. So yeah. this is a numbers game. But it really does give give the book more personality, you know. It looks like it's really been it's read. It's been read. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's You're, been read and digested. You read the shit out of it. Read the shit out of it. <laughs> uh, this episode's brought to you by Ghost Strong Equipment. Ghost Strong uh, specializes in manufacturing gym equipment, uh, personalized, so you can you know choose the colors, choose your logo, and they can pretty much make whatever you want. They're a little bit on a, uh, you know, they, they have had so many orders that they're a little bit behind, but... You know, make sure to put your name on the list, on the waiting list, so that you can get your equipment. Anything else to say? Mm, don't forget to screenshot the uh, episode you're listening to. Tag me, Steffi, and Hybrid Unlimited, and you will automatically be entered into a competition where you'll have the chance to win an entire hybrid apparel uh, drop for free. So, yep. again, all you have to do is tag me, Steffi, and Hybrid Unlimited. And that's it. Make sure to also check out www.hybridperformancemethod.com. Buy some of the best training programs out there, written by some of the best coaches in the industry in each discipline. And check out our nutrition coaching. It's on the same website. Be, uh, you know, you want to shed a few LBs. You want to gain a few LBs. You just want a better relationship with food. We can help you with whatever your nutrition goals are. So check us out and sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. Okay, so I found this book really, really interesting for, for many reasons, but the main one is that I think that it really um, goes against what society and kind of like what common sense would tell you that you need in order to succeed in this world, in order to make a lot of money, in order to be a good athlete, in order to, you know, be good at what you do. I can already tell why this book appealed to you. You're a real against the grain kind of person. If someone tells you this is the way to do something, you just want to do the opposite. You know what? I mean, maybe it's it's part of being a rebel, you know, because I've always kind of been like that. But also I feel like there's there's a method to my mad madness. You know, it's taken me a while to really understand why I've done things the way that I've done them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I, I think that maybe I, I i hadn't known how to kind of explain why i was taking the the path or the journey that i took but there's a reason why i i knew that it was a better a better approach to life in general you know so 
this book is called Ranged Range, and it's about how generalists and why generalists can thrive in an over-specialized world. And the essence of the book is it, it shows you different examples of people who have thrived through extensive sampling periods and experimentation periods or discovery periods prior to choosing what they want to focus on. And a great analogy that they used was dating. When, if you start dating and you have a, a boyfriend and girlfriend, when you're 16 years old, you know, we've all gone through the, the high school sweetheart. You, maybe you think you're going to marry the person, but, and I guess it works for certain people, but I think it's not the norm. People right. who stay after, uh, together at, since high school, right? Yeah. Finding the the right person for you on your first shot. That's a pretty, pretty lucky. Yeah. And it's, it's very, it's, it's lucky and it's pretty unique, but I think for most people, I mean, most people I think would agree to the fact that it's, it's difficult to find that person and you wouldn't just take that decision so lightly of like, okay, you know, I met this person when I was 15, 16, and this is the one. I think most people would have a very hard time making that decision. And so the whole point of the book is basically saying, you know, if, if we treated life the way that we treat our dating, our dating life, then, you know, which is like through extensive sampling and, and not, and not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, what I'm looking for settling yeah and not settling for the first thing that that you that you that you see or the first sure. person that you you know the first person that you date then so that'd be like committing to wait the hold on let, let me go back can you corrupt this part of like with, with the part that I didn't know the word yeah okay so when you make the analogy of um, treating your life the same way that you treat your dating life, which is you don't settle for the first thing that you, for the first person that you meet, then you have a way bigger chance at finding what it is that excites you, what it is that you're good at. And, and, you know, just finding something that you genuinely love doing. That makes sense to me. I think it's a lot like, I mean, like you just said, it's, it's relatable. Most people, you know, you're forced to choose, uh, a degree in university at a super young age before you've had a ton of experiences and seen it a lot of the world. And what most people do is they commit, you know, they're literally 16 or 17 years old and you're like, you're already choosing your career path. And because you it's the system, right? Like the system wants you to yeah. know what you're going to do. Yeah. And I remember like when I was in college and I would meet someone who was a freshman in college and they already knew exactly what they wanted to be. They'd be like, Oh yeah, I want to be a uh, immigration lawyer or yeah, I want to be a, uh, I don't know, a news, a news, uh, anchor, anchor or whatever. Like I would be shocked because at 17, 18, I had no clue what I wanted to do, but I felt so much pressure from mm -hmm. society to pick a path and pick one thing to specialize on that. I always felt like I was behind, yeah. you know, and that was really like stressful for me and frustrating because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And this book, like I said, you know, it really kind of brings light to the fact that there's more than one way of doing things and that you don't always have to conform to societal rules or the mold or this, the steps that are being proposed to you by an advisor, your parents, society, whatever it is, because there's not one, like one size fits all when it comes to finding your passion, finding what you're good at, finding your sport. Now there's many ways to get to that, to that point. So a really cool example they gave was they compared Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer and explained how 
you know, in, in the eyes of Tiger Woods parents, the key to being successful in life was to specialize early and getting ahead. Right. Uh And it, you know, Tiger Woods did excellent with, with that approach because he found at a really young age that he was really, really good at golfing, right? Like he won his first, uh, his first big competition against adults when he was like 13 years old, or I don't remember the exact details, but pretty impressive career progress. Very clearly a golf phenom at a young age. Yeah. Right. And, and that's all he did. Like he basically played golf his entire life and that worked for him. And then when you contrast that with Roger Federer, he had a very different kind of path than Tiger Woods. He, his range in experiencing different sports is what made him good at tennis. And he started playing tennis when he was 18. So he wow, spent, that's yeah, crazy. that's crazy, you know, cause he's the best male tennis player in the world. Um, what did he play before? Everything. He played everything. He, he, all the sports, gymnastics, football, soccer, baseball, he did everything. And he even says that he thinks that his sampling period was what allowed him to be success, to become successful. You know, he just gathered so many different skills and developed himself athletically, athletically to such a degree that when he landed in tennis, he had stamina, he had strength, he had all this, all this different, um, skills and strengths that benefited his, his tennis career, essentially. Another example they give, it's about music. So Yo-Yo Ma, the, the uh, chess, or chess, cellist. cello, the cellist. Uh, I, I, sorry to interrupt you, but I can only think of when Kramer gets kicked in the head in Seinfeld and keeps going, Yo-Yo Ma, <laughs> every time I hear Yo-Yo Ma, but go on. Nice. Good tangent. <laughs> Shout uh, out to the Seinfeld fans out there. So anyway, Yo-Yo Ma is the most uh, well-known and, and uh, celebrated cello player and he actually started playing violin then played piano and then eventually found cello and he gives examples of just so many areas like michelangelo he initially started with sculptures and then hated painting and then became famous for painting van gogh didn't didn't produce a successful uh piece of art until he was like 33 you know, and he, he was, a. what was the story on him? Cause it was really cool. His Something story like going was, on in the woods or his story was really interesting. I mean, he, the kid was a failure. He was a failure. Everything he did, he failed at, but he just kind of like kept trying to do different things, different things. His parents were like so frustrated with him cause he, he couldn't do anything right essentially, but he never gave up. He never gave up trying to find something that that he was truly good at, that he could excel at. And at 33 was when he started actually, or 30, 33 was when he started yeah. painting things that got that got him recognition. Sadly for Van Gogh, he ended up, I think, committing suicide and his paintings didn't become as famous until he was dead. It might be, and some might of them be, were sold for like $100 million. I mean, it might be part of the reason why his stuff was worth as much as it is. But that that mentality reminds me of that of what Eddie Hall said that one time we were talking to him. You what know, uh, you, were, you asked him how he deals with failure. And he said that he spoke to someone who was a sport, maybe a sports psychologist who asked him, well, what if I told you you're only X amount of failures away from from being being the best or like having the biggest success or reaching your goal? Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's that's an amazing perspective and it's an amazing way to to look at failure, you know. Um, What's the other saying? You either win or you learn. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a matter of perspectives. I've, I've always said that. I've always said that. But, you know, I think. It's very clear, at least for me, after learning about all of these different people who are extremely successful, 
uh, what the value of experimentation is and the fact that experimentation is as important, if not more important than expertise, you know, um, they talk a lot about the difference between early career specializers and later specializers. You know, the fact that people who specialize early kind of like get a, a head start because they already know kind of like what they're going to get into. So they already start working their connections. They start, uh, you know, increasing their knowledge of a particular topic or whatever. Um, and then, but what they found is that late specializers actually were able to not only catch up to them, but exceed exceed them and have better careers wow. than the early specializers because because what happens when you specialize really early and you start gathering you know you start developing in one area is that you have a lot more to lose if you were to if you were to quit and what that affects your performance because you're more stressed out and yeah it's a, yeah it's actually called the sunk sunken cost fallacy, fallacy. yeah you know what you know what that happens all the time in regular life. It's when you start watching a movie and like, you know, you're halfway through it and you know that it sucks, but you're like, ah, I've already committed like an hour of my time to it. So you watch it anyways. You know, what's hilarious. I've never done that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You never do that. No, right. I'm like, I'm like, I don't like this I'm, movie. Boom. Change. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm guilty of that too. Even though I'm, I'm aware of the principle because my, my dad used to speak about it a lot. Yeah. You know, what happens with the sunken cost fallacy is that when you invest time or time and or money into into something for a long period of time, then we're, we, we really loathe leaving it because that means that you've wasted time and or money. Right. And that, that's what happens. And it's a fallacy because there's no benefit into riding out a shitty situation. Exactly. It's just going to continue to be bad. Exactly. And, and you know what? I think that part of the reason why, why the sunk cost fallacy exists, it's because again, society really, it's really front upon in today's society to have a change in interest and to quit something. Like we're part of a society that really views quitting as a negative thing. Mm -hmm. When in reality, like the idea that a change of interest or recalibrating your focus is an imperfection and a competitive disadvantage, just it's going to lead to a one size fits all tiger story. Like it's going to lead people to tiger story. Like the same thing that, that Tiger Woods did, like, just like they think they're going to be like Tiger, but it's not oh, going to be see. the case for them. I see. You know, like they want people to pick something and, and stick to it as soon as possible. There was an interesting quote there from Steve Levitt, the guy that wrote Free Economics. Uh -huh. I love that book. Did you read it? Yeah. That's a great book. I, I actually w would like to read it again because I forgot everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he pretty much says that the worst advice that anyone can give anyone is winners never quit and quitters never win that he hates that he thinks it's the worst advice ever but you have nothing to say yeah, i mean I, uh, okay. I strongly agree <laughs> i mean you're a good example of that yeah i mean I, he uh, says he says switchers are winners but he he calls it more like in uh, informed switching you know like you have to sure. you have to obviously weigh risk versus reward and and try to make the switch in a way that makes sense. Cause I would never advise someone to, to change careers at a point where their, their finances are super unstable or if they have a family and they have to provide, like there's, I think there's a way to switch careers in a way that mitigates a lot of the risk sure, uh, rather than like just doing it on a whim. You yeah, know? I, yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to common sense, you know, don't quit your old job until you have a new one. 
lined up, you know, things like that. Like obviously there's risk involved, but you can mitigate a lot of the risk. And uh, Tom and Juji spoke a lot about that. Remember when they were on the podcast, they were saying, uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they try to get into YouTube or, or other forms of social media is that they, they think they need to quit everything else and go all in on this one thing. Uh, you know, because that's what society tells you that you should do. Mm -hmm. And it's not the case. Like, and same with, we see a lot of it in the fitness industry, especially where people are, you know, they think they have to quit their job to be a, a full-time power lifter. It's like, well, how much time can you really spend being a full-time power lifter? Mm -hmm. You're in the gym for two, three hours. And then what, what are you doing with the rest of your time? You know? Yeah. Absolutely. So I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The book also talks about traditional education, which is a topic that I've been super interested in. You know, I went to undergrad here at University of Miami, studied exercise physiology, sports medicine. And then I went to graduate school at the University of Miami as well, studied, uh, got my doctor in physical therapy. And I've always had a, an issue with traditional education, um, not in the sense that I didn't see the value, but more in the sense of the way that the, the way that the system is built and the fact that, I don't know, I just kind of always felt that we were being taught always what to think about, you know, at the expense of trying to pass a test. When in reality, I think that students need to be taught to think before uh -huh. they're taught what to think about. Yeah. You know, because if you, when you make learning so rigid for the purpose of passing a test, you're not helping students develop their critical thinking and their analogical thinking. Sure. You're just kind of like forcing information down their, their throats until, you know, so that they can regurgitate it on an exam. You know what the original, per, like how universities originally started? Mm -mm. They, so it, it's changed a ton, but back in the day, like way, way back, I'm talking, it was for like the upper, upper class to experience like a more philosophical uh, form of higher learning. Mm -hmm. So like it, it was a privilege of the wealthy to learn about things like whatever they wanted, but there was no real means to an end. It was just learning for the sake of learning, which I think is a really good approach. Whereas now university is positioned like honestly from grade one, they're telling you all the things that you like, don't, don't get in trouble and get suspended at school because mm -hmm. it'll go on your record and then you're not going to get into a good school yeah. or like, you know, you, all the way you're just being groomed for the next step. And then university is just the next step to getting a job in today's society. And that's not what the initial intended purpose was for it at all. Yeah, for sure. But, but it's also important to, you can just shit on the traditional education system, you know, cause it has a lot of great things. I think this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but it really, triggers me when I hear people like, uh, Gary V recommending kids not to go to school, you yeah. know, and in endorsing that, endorsing that decision. And because it's not necessary. I started a very successful business when I was in university, you know, like you don't need to quit to, in order to do, to start a business just. And I think you shouldn't. I think that there's, there's a, there's a fundamental reason why kids going to college is something extremely positive for their development. Like we spoke about it the other day, like starting with, uh, like social time, IQ, social IQ, dealing with people. It is so huge. Uh, time management responsibilities, being able to juggle multiple, you know, doing multiple things at a time, meeting deadlines, meeting deadlines. handling, uh, like huge amounts of pressure, not to mention, which is, and this is, I'm going to tie it back to the book. The value, the true value of traditional education is that it allows you to delay specialization. 
Sure. You know, it gives you a long four-year sampling period to figure out who you are and where you fit into society. You know, like when I see all of these these kids nowadays that are getting into YouTube or TikTok and Instagram and are making tons of money and decide to drop out of college or drop out of high school or whatever it is, it really makes me sad. It makes me sad because again, like they're specializing so early. They're, they're just focusing on one thing. Like if their thing is fitness and that's all that they're going to do. And they're now they're going to be either relying on sponsors or relying on, on this trend that we're on right now sure. with no backup plan to fall into if anything happens and w- without the developing themselves in any other way. I, I, For me, social is the most important one. Yeah. And then obviously like sampling, like knowing, knowing what professions are out there, knowing what topics are out there, learning about the world, you know, learning about just important things that, that school teaches you. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to also say that there are definitely certain people that university is not, is just not the the move for them. And I think that's totally fine. If you can identify that with yourself, within yourself, uh, you know, maybe you, you'd rather go to like a community college and you'd rather be in a trade or like you have a career path that just doesn't require you to go to university. But if you're simply quitting university because you're trying to pursue some, like, I don't know, any of the things we were just talking about, I don't think it's necessarily the right move. And to your second point, it is such an exploratory period. Like, I took my, my degrees in international economics and finance, as you know, but every, every time I had the option to take an elective that was in, uh, uh philosophy, I did. Cause I love that part of it. And, you know, you could argue that it doesn't have as have a ton to do with, uh, economics. I disagree. I mean, I, I think in, in some ways it really does mm-hmm. understanding people and, and the way they think and the way you know, norms come to be, I think and being, being able to think critically, like how, yeah. how many, how many times during your class you had to get into a debate where you had to like oh, all the time persuade people to agree with you and where yeah. you had to like understand the other person's point of view and where you had to like draw from other experiences that you might've had or other knowledge that you might've had to present, present uh, your point in a different way so that people understood it. Like there's just so much there, yeah. you know, and so much, so much value. Yeah, so I would encourage anybody if you if you have the opportunity to take some higher level philosophy courses uh, to to do it because it, it it really changes the way you think about things that you think you know, and it's hard to describe without going too far down the rabbit hole. So I won't go too far down, but you think you know things and you think you can prove things, and you get in debates with people, and you you can't prove them wrong. Mm-hmm based on, on the philosophies that you have. So it's just, uh, yeah, I think it's a really cool exploratory. I agree. Period. But anyway, so going back to the topic of traditional ed- education, um, we, we alluded to it briefly about the value of, um, later of sampling and, and specializing later. Um, what happens is that when you sample, when you sample first and then in focus later on choosing a job and you have fewer like domain specific skills based on like what area you want to go into, mm-hmm. you might, yeah, you might have less specific skills about a particular job, but you have a way greater sense of the job that fits your abilities and inclinations. And that th- that's it. Like the benefits of that match between you and what you want to do far outweighs the loss in specific skills that a particular job requires. And we've like, we've proven based on research. And this is one thing, one great argument that the, that the book presents is that learning stuff is less important than learning about oneself, you know, and this quote, I love it's exploration is not just a luxury of education. It's a central benefit. 
So what do you make of that? Um, it's exactly that. It's like part of education becomes, uh, I'm making sense. I'm going to take that from you. Why? Because you're chomping the end of this pen and I can hear it in my I, I I don't know what you mean by that question. Like what, what do I make of that? Sure. Exactly that. Where's the, where's the quote? Benefits of uh, learning stuff. Exploration is not just a luxury of education. It's a central benefit. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Like, like it's both, it's both, right. it's both a luxury and a central benefit, but it's, it's not one or the other. Got it. You know, you benefit from, from exploring in more than one way. Yeah. It's not just an afterthought that you get to explore certain things. It's, it's something that you should be seeking out. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think when it, it, this, there's another story here that I'm going to talk about that really hit close to home as well. You know, you know, when we were, we're talking about like gathering skills and how for the longest time I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I kept kind of just like moving forward without having a, I had a general sense of direction, but I didn't have like a, a pinpoint. Sure. I didn't have a, an exact latitude longitude of exactly where I wanted to land. I right. just knew I was going North kind of thing. Um, what was your general direction? I just knew I wanted to be in, involved in fitness in some capacity. Like I knew there were, there were several things there. I knew I wanted to be involved in fitness. I knew I wanted to have an important job title or an, uh, like a prestigious degree that is respected in the, in the, in the industry. Right. Um, I knew I wanted to be a professional athlete. I knew I wanted to, you know, test the limits of my body in a sport. I didn't even care what sport, what sport was the one that was going to, that I was going to, you know, be a professional athlete at. I, right. I didn't really care. All I cared was, you know, I'm going to work on my networking skills to meet as many people in the industry as possible. I'm going to train as hard as I can. I'm going to develop my cardio, my strength, my endurance, all those things. I'm going to study and read as much of, about personal development as I can to, to gather all the skills that I might, that I might need in the future. So there was a, a story in the book of this woman, her last name is he Hazelbaum. I forgot what her first name is. I just Hazelbaum. 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 Part of the tribe. Hazelbaum. Hazelbaum. Let me see. Hazelbaum. 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 Sounds like uh, one of the houses in Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so she was the president of the Girl Scouts. Like she was pretty, pretty involved in that. Which, by the way, do you guys know that Girl Scouts cookies make three hundred million dollars a year? It's yeah. quite the racket they're running there, huh? That's insane, man. I've bought so many Girl Scout cookies because I'm like, oh, you know, poor girls. Like I'm gonna help them, and then three hundred million, boom, <sighs> not safe. It's legal slave labor, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so she was, you know, in charge president. I don't know exactly what her title was. And then she became a CEO of a bunch of other uh, businesses. And she got 23 honorary doctorate degrees. Like that's how good she was at, their, at her job. What at exactly everything. is an honorary degree? They just determine that you're well versed enough in whatever the topic is. They just give you a degree with it. You have to take a course. I guess. Doesn't like Dr. Dre have an honorary degree, doctorate? I find that very hard to believe who was it kanye drake kanye graduated from art school or something yeah but does he have i think well, he one of those guys has an honorary degree 
I promise you. Okay. One of, so you're saying one of either Kanye West, Dr. Drake, Dre, or, or Drake. Drake has an honorary yeah. degree of some sort? Yeah. Okay. We're going to have to look uh, look into this. Kanye graduated something. I believe that he graduated, but I... Okay. I don't know. I think he has a doctorate in arts and something like that. Okay. Sh- I can see that. He has a billion dollar... Oh, my God. Hey, hey, hey. Tangents are what we're all about, Cohen. All right? It's hybrid unlimited, not hybrid very limited. Okay. So I am interested in that though, but I could see why Kanye would have a honorary degree in, in something related to fashion. If yeah. we're being honest, he's a billion dollar enterprise. Exactly. So. Maybe he has an honorary degree in fashion design, fashion merchandising, something like that. Can you get a doctorate in that though? I have no idea. All right. Okay. On to the next. Yeah. So anyway, you know, she has 23 honorary doctorate degrees and someone asked her one time how she prepared for that. Like, how did she, how did she get to that point? What did she study? What book she read or whatever? And her response was that she just did whatever seemed like it would teach her something and allowed her to be of service at each moment. And somehow that ended that ended up adding up. You know, she she just kept doing one thing at a time, like based on whatever the the whatever she was doing. She just kept learning more to make herself fit better into that position. Which is interesting because, like I said, it's the it's the approach. It's a lot similar to the approach that I've taken in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to wrap up, really, our work preferences and our life preferences are not supposed to stay the same throughout our life, and we're not, we shouldn't be. We shouldn't feel bad if that ever happens. Like if you want a career change, if you stop enjoying something, I think that's perfectly normal because we, we don't stay the same. We change, you know, Uh our interests change, our work preference change and and that's okay. And honestly, like the only way we can find what we like is by living not before, like having a really, uh, inflexible and stiff plan doesn't really work because you, you really don't know. I mean, you can speculate all you want about what you think you could be good at, what you think you're going to enjoy, but it's not until you actually do it that you realize whether or not you're fitted for it or whether or not you like it or not. You know, so instead of working back from the ultimate goal that you have, you work forward from, from a promising situation. You know, that's kind of like what, what, what I've done. I don't, I didn't know exactly what the goal was going to be. I just kind of like kept moving forward. Like I said, so right. I, I feel like a lot of people make that mistake as well. In search of whatever the domain was, where, what are your three pillars? Skill, Skills, talents, and passion. Skill, talents, and passion aligned. Why don't you talk on that real quick? What do those three pillars mean? Yeah. So I think when you're looking for what you want to do with your life, whether it's in athletics or, or career wise, I always think that there's kind of three pillars. There's, you have your, your, uh, talents, which is kind of what you're born with. It's your natural innate abilities to, or inclinations to be good at something. Then you have your skills. Like that guy who just. Like Tiger Woods. Or, you know, some guy who just picks up a basketball and is able to shoot into the net better than anyone with no practice. Like Sarah, the wrestler. Right. Yeah. You probably, you guys probably, well, if you didn't listen to a podcast episode, you should, because it was amazing. I mean, she pretty much started doing arm wrestling at 13 years old. Uh, and the way that she found that she was good at it was because they hosted a arm wrestling 
tournament at her school, school and she ended up beating everyone, all the, pro- the, the male and female professors, all the boys, young or old, like she just was a phenom yeah. at it. And that's her talent. Like she was born with that ability. Right. You know? I'm not saying that if you, if you don't have talent, you can't be good at it. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying when you weigh the three pillars of skills, talents, and passions, like those are three kind of imagine, um, imagine skills, talents, passion around the X axis and on the Y axis is like the amount of each that you have. So kind of like a, a, sure. a graph bar, a bar graph, bar graph. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. A bar graph, graph, graft, graph, graph. Yeah. A bar graph. <laughs> Uh, you're trying your best to balance out each of those bars. They don't have to be all equal, but you're just trying to, you're just through life. You're seeking to find the best balance. Oh, sorry. And the, and the final one is passion. You know, passion is something that, that you were excited about something that you're something that makes you happy. Like, I'm not saying it needs to be something that you absolutely love. It needs to be something that you're interested in because what ends up happening is that if you find something that you're talented and skilled on, so skills is something that you can develop. A skill is something that, um, a skill is something that through practice and repetition you can improve on. So if you have the talent and you have the skill, the passion is going to follow because everyone enjoys being good at something and being praised. So in the perfect example is me and powerlifting. I mean, was powerlifting my favorite sport when I started or now? No, it's not my favorite sport, but I love the feeling of being strong. I love the feeling of being able to go at a competition and, and dominate. Love the feeling of of being praised and accepted and, and yeah. belonging to a community. You know, there's there's different things that fall into passion. Passion is not just the love for doing something. Passion. Your passion can be developed just like exactly. just like anything else. And so, the way that I like to think about it is like three lists. You know, you have your, say you have a list of occupations or sports or whatever, you know, for that you're talented in a list that you're, uh, where, where you're, you're, you're skilled in and they're ranked and a list of how passionate you are about each of them. Mm-hmm. I think people get too hung up on trying to, to find something where the activity that they're doing is number one on all three of those lists. Yeah. And I think it's oftentimes unrealistic. It is. Like you it's very rare that you're going to be, you're going to find the number one across the board. But so you know, maybe you find. The, no, you the know what? The, you know, what the biggest problem is what? that we, that our parents, our parents are always telling us to do what we love. Sure. And that's only taken into account the passion tab. Right. And that's a huge problem because like, what if what you love is not what you're the best at? Yeah. And it also what? neglects the idea that passion can be developed. Like we just also said. Also that. Yeah. You might find some, something that you're interested in. Sure. And so, well, and look, and even if it's the thing you're not number one, most passionate about is number two or three on your list. Maybe you sacrifice a little bit of passion for skill and aptitude or, or skill and, and talent and talent. And you develop that passion or you don't, but it's still something that you're relatively passionate about. And it's, it's a good balance of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a more practical way to, to look at it in sports and in career. Yeah, for sure. And, and honestly, like that struggle, you can learn so much by that struggle. They, they make a point here about the way that learning should be implemented. They talk about the fact that learning should be slow and hard and not quick and easy. I feel like everyone's always looking for the quick and easy way to learn something. Like that's how mnemonics started, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're just trying to simplify things yeah. as, much, as much as possible. When in reality, what you want to do is make it as hard as possible. And it's interesting because they talk about a a school where they were rating, the students were rating the professors, like they were analyzing uh, teacher scores 
given to them by students. And they found that the teachers who were rated the worst were the ones that taught the best. Like the students would score better in those classes and retain the information for many years after in the classes that they, that they rated the professor to be, to be the most difficult or like the worst, like the one that they got along with the The worst, the least. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Because it's better long-term if you're, if you're struggling and it's called desirable difficulties. And that happens because when you struggle to generate an answer on your own, even getting that answer wrong is going to enhance your subsequent learning essentially. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it helps you develop other skills in life too. Yeah. And they also said this was super interesting. Repetition is less important than struggle. Interesting. Why? Um, Because of what I said before, because the fact that you're, when you struggle and even when you generate a wrong answer, just, this is just based on data and tests. Even if you, even if you have the wrong answer multiple times and then you have it right, that the poor performance followed by sub followed by learning enhances your memory retention and your understanding of is a particular concept. I was going to say, is that more indicative of, of actually learning something? Whereas repetition is just memorization. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That like you're, you're way less likely to remember something that you just memorized than something that you actually spent time no, for sure. developing. Have you ever crammed for a test? Soon, and, and as soon see, as you walk out of that room, you don't remember a single thing. And see, so that would, that would be one problem that I have with traditional education that I feel like, that I feel like there's way too much information being crammed in one class and it's and, and, and it doesn't give you enough time to truly absorb what you're learning. Agreed. If, if the goal of the test is to just see if you can handle pressure and like passing an obstacle, then okay. But if your goal is for people to actually learn to the best of their ability, it might not be the best system. Yeah. They actually, they actually looked at a study um, in that was published in 1987 in the Journal of Experimental Psychology where they took separated two groups of Spanish speaking people uh, and wanted to teach them some words in English. The group of kids that was tested the day after versus the one that was tested a week after the week, the one that tested the week after performed 200% better. What? Mm -hmm. Wow. What was the difference in their learning? They just had more time to think about it. Yeah. Interesting. It, it, it wasn't that they like sat down and practice every day. It was just like. That's a little bit counterintuitive because I feel like if I like crammed for a test and then tried to remember what I crammed a week later, it'd be really hard versus if I just survived the test the what day, about, next day. What about if you knew you were going to be tested the week later? And I, yeah, I guess you could keep thinking about it. it keep, you know, you sleep on it and yeah. Did that ever happen to you? in uh university like it happened to me a lot with with difficult math courses where i'd go to bed stumped and i'd wake up in the morning and know the answer like my brain oh, yeah, my, yeah, yeah, like yeah. my brain was just working on it overnight even though i didn't know and then i also think that stress that. like stress impairs your memory so much stress That's and lack true. of sleep so that again another issue with with traditional education like if they're if they're putting so much on your plate that you can bear you barely have time to to really learn and digest then you're on top of that. You're not sleeping at all. You're pulling all nighters. You know how many all nighters I pulled yeah. off? Like when I was in in uh, gra- in college and in grad school. Obviously, I'm not going to remember anything of that class. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we there was times where we had like study groups. We'd go to empty classrooms, and people would literally sleep there 
just wake up and keep studying. Yeah, that's crazy. But anyway, to to wrap it up, um, you know, talking about why a narrow focus is actually unhelpful for thinking outside of the box, um, you know, which is the the premise of the of the entire book. They actually covered an interesting example, which was that, um, you know, someone created this website that I, the name just escaped. I, I told you about this the other day. Describe whatever. it. Whatever. It's a website that they created to solve complex problems. So it's usually like uh, engineers or people over at NASA or or even like oh, yeah. doctors who are developing a drug or or chemists, whatever. When they're having an issue that they can't solve, they actually look for generalists. They look for outside outside help to try to figure out and understand. Sure. It's like a problem bulletin board and anyone can weigh in on it, right? Exactly. That's, That's exactly what it is. Um and they found it super helpful. And the reason why is because the more knowledge that you gain in one particular subject, the more your experience is going to bias you to think in a certain way. Whereas if you're if you're not inside that world, you can resort to analogical thinking instead of resorting to experience thinking to solve an issue. And when you draw the analogical thinking, you're you're better able to to find solutions. Sure, Which I think is just, it was so interesting. It goes, it's like that old saying, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're exactly. super specialized, you're, you're a bit of a hammer. Yeah, exactly. They even, they even found that patients with cardiac arrest were more likely to survive uh, at times when the cardiologist wasn't present in the ER. When what? The cardiologist wasn't present in the ER. But what was special about the patients? I missed that. Cardiac arrest. Like if you have a heart attack. No, I understand what that is, but- Patients with which patients with heart attack? What was the interesting thing about them that made them more likely to survive? That they weren't treated by a cardiologist. Oh, okay, okay. So they yeah. were they were just treated by like a general an practitioner or, or okay. Yeah, like an really? internal medicine person. Yeah. Wow. Why? I mean, that's crazy. Because cardiologists would be so stuck to their own procedures that they probably would perform perform procedures that weren't necessary. Okay. For a particular person, like, you know, maybe they put them under and like they gave, they put them a stent or, or a pacemaker when they actually didn't need it. But they've been so trapped in this, like, you know, when sure. they see, when they see A, they go to D, when they see C, they go to A, whatever. It, it you like know? removes almost the, the thinking part of it and it's just automatic behavior. It, totally, totally. So they Got stop it. thinking critically. So when an outsider comes in, they're able to see the whole situation and like really see it for what it is and make a decision based on actual critical thinking and not on uh, automaticity or, you know, or, or repetition. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is automaticity a word? No idea. It sounds like a word to me. If it's not, it should be. That's a good, I like that. Yeah. And yeah. So uh, actually I have just one more thing here, especially about, um, analogical thinking, critical thinking. So in 1981, they started developing the concept of, of IQ, IQ tests, and they actually found that every 10 years, so every decade, there's a three-point increase in IQ. So a child who scores average today would have scored 94th percentile of the, of the kids, of the grandpa's generation. Isn't that insane? Like that's how much, how much IQ has developed over the years. Oh, like just evolutionary IQ. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what made that change is that, again, what I was explaining is, is the shift from relying on experience 
and moving more towards abstract thinking. So, you know, we make sense of reality through classification schemes, through using layers of abstract concepts to understand how pieces of information relate to one another. So, you know, the fact that we've developed our analogical thinking and our inner abstract thinking has made us, has made us uh, able to think about things in a different way. So the, I loved an example that they gave, which was, um, I can't remember what the, the exact group of people that they did this on, but it was, it was people who lived in, in a very rural area. They would ask him a very a practical question about say like, like for example, there was, I think there was one that was like, there's uh, two male adults and, and one kid, which one, which one doesn't belong? And they would say, okay. well, and I think their answer was something like, well, the kid needs to, to stay with her parents to survive. Like they just weren't able to understand that two adults versus one kid, the kid is the odd man out. Yeah. Or, or if you t were to ask him, you know, if they, if you were to tell them that polar white polar bears live in the North pole, mm -hmm. And you were to ask him if it makes sense to them, like you could give give him an explanation as to why they would be there. Okay. They would respond that they wouldn't know with certainty that they actually live there because they hadn't seen it with their own eyes. So they're overly reliant on on their own experience in order to think about anything. So that's how our brains have developed over 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 the de decades. It's developing our abstract thinking, our analogical thinking, and that's what's so important to think outside of the box. Wow. And it's something that that's why flat earthers and, and anti-vaxxers are the way they are. They're just, their brains haven't evolved <laughs> past the experience part. I think so. No matter what facts you throw at them, they're like, well, I know a kid who got autism after a shot. Yeah. Anyway. But, but even then, I mean, remember what you said about flat earthers and, and you were like, wait, have you not been in an airplane ever? And I bet and you like, that they have. Shit, go on an airplane, look down. Dude, but I bet <laughs> you that they have. And still they're like, no. And I don't know. That is unfathomably dumb. <laughs> Trust me, I'm with you in this one. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that's the uh, gist of the book range. We went we went a little bit longer than than I would have liked. Forty nine minutes. Wow. It was a really good book overall. I really love the principles. I would really recommend that. Honestly, anyone, well, anyone to read it, but especially if you are between the ages of. 16 and 24, please read this book. Like it really will open up your eyes uh, to how many options you have. Yeah. And, and the fact that it's okay not to have everything planned out. It's okay not to know exactly where you're going. It's okay to accumulate a bunch of skills and not know exactly how you're going to use them. I mean, I still do that and I, and I have a, a pretty cool gig, but I'm still, you know, you always see that. Like I'm learning about genetic sure. editing. I'm learning about fashion merchandising. I love learning about business marketing. I love learning all the time, you know, developing as many skills as possible because I have no idea how and when my interests will change and to what capacity my, my, my skills are going to have to evolve. So yeah, why not keep as many doors open as possible? Exactly. The, the best thing in life that you can, you can do, the best thing in life is to have options. When you don't have options, that's when you're screwed. And guess what? You're not going to have options if you only know how to do one thing. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, you know, in today's society, it's just so, um, um, gl not glamorized, but, uh, yeah, like glorified, glorified. It's so glorified to, to be a specialist in one thing. You yeah. know how many of my professors like were trying to convince me to go and get a PhD in physical therapy. 
Yeah. And for a long time, I was like, yeah, you know, I have, you remember? I was like, no, I want to really be really good at one thing. Like, I want to know everything there is to know about this one thing. But yeah. I genuinely don't believe that doing that actually helps you solve any problems. Agreed. I think there's cases where it might help. For example, like, uh, like oncology specialists, people who treat cancer patients. Like, I think you... I think that the only way that you can really make advancements in, in that particular field of medicine is if you really devote yourself to that one thing. But I think that for most other things in life, agree. it really doesn't apply. Yeah, I agree. You, you're not going to be a better physical therapist just because you have a, a, a PhD in biomechanics of the left hip. You really aren't. You know what's going to make you a better physical therapist? Working with people. Working with people. Training yourself. Getting hurt yourself, learning more about strength and conditioning, yeah. you know, practicing different sports, observing different sports, you know, understanding what the mechanisms of injury are. Like if you watch, if you watch American football, you're going to learn real quick what the mechanism of injury of an ACL tear is just by watching. Sure. Like you don't have to memorize anything. And guess what? How are you going to make someone stronger to uh, try to try to decrease the risk of an ACL injury? You know, you're also going to learn that through watching. Oh, okay, like he's pivoting left and he didn't have enough stability on that hip. His his left knee collapsed inwards and got a little bit of valgus, couldn't stabilize. Like that's how you figure things out. Yeah. You know, with with actual thinking. Yeah. But the problem is we're not thinking. We're programming. We're programming. Exactly. Yeah. Like people are telling us what to think. And they're not and they're not celebrating when when people are trying to think. And I, that was one of the things that happened to me in, in grad school that anytime I would question anything, first of all, I would, it, it, it would be bad, you know, like the professors and my, and students, like my classmates would get upset at me for, for asking a question or, or a professor would be, would feel insulted if I had a question or, or, uh, or a point that disagrees with what they're teaching, you know? And for the longest time I thought that I was stupid because I, I just, wouldn't accept what what was being taught to me about certain things mm -hmm. so yeah open your eyes um you know learn as many things as you can i think that's that's one of the beauties of being alive is accumulating experiences and accumulating knowledge and you know enhancing enhancing yourself as much as possible and learning as much as possible and you know just enjoying it, making every day count yeah i'm with you and uh don't quit school just because Gary V yells at you through Instagram. Yeah, please, kids, just go to college, you know, go to college, please. Or don't. But if you don't do it, don't go for a good reason. Don't go because Gary V told you it's the only way to become successful. I think so. Go to college. I got a, I got a bone to pick with this Gary V. Should we invite him on the podcast? No, he talks way too fast and, and talks over you and, and he's just louder. So people assume he's right. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, anyway, yeah. hope you guys uh, hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Uh, please check out hybridperformancemethod.com for training programs and nutrition programs. Hybridapparel.store for the swaggiest, dopest uh, apparel in in the world. I would say e easily, easily in the galaxy. In this solar system, easily. I don't know what the galaxy or solar system is bigger, but anyway uh so yeah as always thank you guys for tuning in thank you guys for for your time for listening to us uh remember to repost this episode onto your ig stories or your post whatever or twitter whatever the heck you young kids do nowadays and uh tag us take hybrid tag us, yeah catch you guys next time bye bye